0: Good morning, church. If you're wondering what in the world I just listened to, it was chapter one of the Song of Songs in its entirety. Song of Songs, Song of Solomon used by different interpretations, Uh, a complicated, uh, different love story that we will be starting in chapter one. Last week, Pastor Richard kind of set the table as an introduction. We're going to be looking at it in a unique way. And no matter what you think about Song of Solomon, it is scripture in the Bible for the last many thousands of years. And so as we study it, the goal would be to have our hearts enlightened, that we would understand the scriptures more, that we would understand what they mean for us in our relationships, in our singleness, in our, in our marriedness, in our widowhood, in our divorceness, no matter what state we're in the room, that this would matter to us, and that this would also have something to teach us about devotional life to Christ all of scripture is meant to enliven and embolden our pursuit of Jesus Christ. And so as we teach this morning, as I teach this morning, my hope is that you encounter Christ in a new way. Every week, even this week, chapter one, Song of Songs, will you bow your heads and pray with me? Lord, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for this time together. We pray that you would come alive this morning, that we would understand more of your heart for humanity, our relationships with one another, Lord, our relationships with you, Teach us and open us up, Lord, that we would become more like you today in the preaching of your word. And all God's people said, amen. Song of Solomon, chapter 1. Hopefully you got a bulletin when you came in. Your sermon title this morning is called Swimming Upstream. Swimming Upstream. Uh, Song of Solomon, chapter 1. We're going to look at the entirety of chapter 1. And and to begin with, just a simple illustration about sources. Uh, This August, we had this family epic Uh, road trip around the west coast to Colorado, back uh, to, (laughs) I recognize Colorado is not on the west coast, nor is Kansas by Chicago, but I'm geographically challenged at times. But uh, we drove to Colorado, then back to the west coast. On the way back, we stopped in Arizona. There's this wonderful hike, they said, Negro Bill Canyon Trailhead uh, outside of Moab, and uh, it was incredible, hiking along the river and through the river, and into this canyon, many miles, 100 degree heat. I've spoken about this hike before. It was a less than perfect hike, we could say, uh, but was remarkable as we hiked into the canyon, along the river, uh, through the canyons, we kept looking for the source. We wanted to go where it all began, because Phil said, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing, but when you get to the source, you'll understand more of what makes this so unique. And so we get many miles up, and we get To the headwaters of the river, it's that last slide. And it literally is, this river comes from, next slide, that source. A crack in the rock, a bubbling up, not enough even to fill up a a cup of water. It takes maybe 30, 45 seconds. Really, really humble beginning. That just a mile downstream, we're literally frolicking in it. But the source is obviously the Genesis to the water. Water that is a surprising feature in the middle of a hundred degree heat. And what does that have to do with Song of Solomon? Today as we begin the Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs, our heart is hoping to understand more of the source. The source of the scriptures. The source of the intimacy. The source of the relationship. The source of why this could matter for us in the year 2017. What is the source of the Song of Songs? And my Hope, friends, this morning is that you would hear your beloved Jesus Christ beckoning you through the scriptures this morning. And I, just at the outset, I, I, I want to say, uh, for those of you in the room this morning, thank you for coming. I had some say, we may just podcast this, honestly. Like, it's, it's a lot. It's just frankly a lot because of things going on in my life, because things I've been through. Because of, you know, my experiences, because of the ways I've been wounded and hurt. And so that this song talks about sexuality and sensuality, it's, it's, it's a lot. That this song, this poem is beckoning me to engage in Jesus Christ in new ways, it's, it's a lot. And so for those you here this morning, those listening at a later time too, I want to say thank you for taking this journey. The hope is that we're going upstream this morning looking for the source that will be water for your journey and beauty for your experiences. We need to understand uh, the source of of Song of Songs being this good love story and this power for us to connect with God and others. Now, this is um, the history of the book. Pastor Rich, I really encourage you, if you were gone last week, um, give it a listen on the website or the app because he does a wonderful job of unpacking some of the history and the complications with the Song of Songs. Let me say at the outset, scholars believe this, this is a poem written about the 6th century BC. So this is, this is a very old poem and it was banned from a sexual reading and then mostly, even though it was in scripture, mostly ignored. The way that we're teaching it, Bethany, that this is a book about covenant love, not a contract love, and to do that, to underscore, it's complicated. The way that we're teaching, the way that we've studied it, is that there's actually two men in the story. There's a king, and then there's a lover. We'll get there. It's complicated, but the, the, the big idea just at the front end, I want you to understand that this is about both vertical love and horizontal love. How am I loved and created by God, and how is this lived out in my actual relationships? And as a church, sometimes we get the axes wrong. We're all about vertical. It's all about me and Jesus, and, and my spiritual life doesn't matter at all in the world. It's all about me and God, and then I go into the world, and it's, you know, it's my privatized faith. It's not what actually the scriptures were calling us to. Or other people get off base, and it's all horizontal. It's all about our justice. It's all about our doing. It's all about our striving. It's all about this, the performance and we lose touch. We were made to be created in the image of God, to be his image to the rest of the world. And this hope of a vertical and horizontal teaching is powerful. This is a poem in a world of misogyny. This is a poem that spoke out against owning women as property, which was obviously commonplace in the sixth century BCE. And it is a poem. And so as a former English teacher, I would just say at the outset, be careful when anyone tells you exactly what a poem means, because poetry is open to different understandings. And so historically, there's been different ways to teach this book. Now, historically, when people had the courage to teach it about sexuality, because it is laden with sensuality and sexuality, primarily it's taught with, there's two characters. There's the woman, and there's the man. And sex is... In this way of teaching it, it is it is good and is God-given. And in the right context between a man and a woman in a married covenantal relationship, it's good. And so when people had the courage to teach it, it was like, hey, let's redeem the way in which Christianity has shackled our sexuality with guilt and shame. Because in an effort to protect ourselves from a very powerful part of how we we're created, many of us were raised with a narrative that sex is bad. Cover it up hide it away because something must be wrong with you you have these urges and if we just cover it up enough it may go away and it is a lie it's a lie we know this were we created by god or not okay if we were made in the image of god and we were made physical beings then the way in which our physical beings connect with the opposite sex it's not bad but it must be contained and typically, when we've taught, you know, when we've had the courage to teach about sexuality at all, the church is vacillated. It's all about restriction, Pastor Richard said last week, or it's all about license. And Song of Solomon teaches a middle way. That's one way it was taught when it was taught at all. And the second way that Song of Songs has been taught historically in studying the life of the church is all allegory. It's all metaphor. It's actually not about sex at all. It's actually not about sexuality. It's all about Christ in the church. I've got commentaries. We're pouring over commentaries. And really smart, learned people say, it's not about the human body. Nope, that's that's not why it's scripture. It's not about healthy human relationships. It's all about us and Christ and Christ wooing us and stepping in. And it ignores the way the poem is laden and dripping with some healthy means of communicating and creating intimacy. And so as we turn to Song of Songs, we... At Bethany, we're teaching it as this third way. Is it about healthy sex and, and sensuality? It is. Is it also an allegory about the Christian faith and about how Christ is wooing us? It, it is. And so in our reading that we'll be teaching you, and I recognize that this is gonna take some time to wrap your mind around, but there's two male characters, even in chapter one. I'm gonna get into it in a moment. This is still our introduction. You're like, goodness, we're gonna be here all day, and we might, but just stay with me. There's two male characters in chapter one. There's the king who who has a harem. It's Solomon. Solomon has 1,000 women that he owns. Some are brides, some are harem, some are lovers. And we know that that's not how God intended healthy sexuality. That we might be with hundreds of different people. It's not at all what healthy attachment is based on. One for one for life is how we we're created. A man and a woman with rings on our fingers saying, my life is defined in my healthy relationship with you. Now what does this mean if we're single? Does this mean we're broken without a ring? And It does not. Because either we're in a season where we are totally content with our singleness, and this is important and powerful for the covenant of love that we want to enter into more with Christ, or this is preparing us. Because in my singleness, I may not be single forever, and so what kind of man or woman might I be looking for? Friends, I get it. It's a lot. But thank you for taking the journey with us. So the way that we're teaching this is that Solomon is this antithesis of unhealthy love. So Solomon was, you know, after God's own heart, at da- son of David, uh, son of Bathsheba and David. And he prayed for a heart of wisdom and did a lot of good things. But the end of his reign, he gets off the rails. And a thousand women is off the rails. It's not what God had intended for his people. And so there's this other lover in chapter one. There's a second lover, a healthy lover. Later in the, in the song, he's known as the groom. Sometimes he's known as the brother, he's known as a friend. There's a healthy love story being written in the midst of this control dynamic. And then there's this woman, really the hero of the poem. Very, very unique, a poem written in the 6th century BCE that we would have this female protagonist that starts the poem saying, let him kiss me. I mean, from the very beginning, this is a different kind of book of the Bible. And a different kind of love poem. And in this reading, we are the woman. We are the one that gets to say, no matter what are the outside forces that are trying to oppress us, we get to choose healthy love. No matter what our experience has been, that we belong to one who calls us in this song, darling, and beloved, and beautiful. And so as we seek to understand where we're going with this, I want to just encourage you that this series, this book, it matters a great deal because all of us, we bear scars from the past and our spirituality and our sexuality are connected. Though we'd like to think of sexuality being in the bedroom and spirituality being in the church, we are integrated human beings and our past stories come to bear how we understand relationship with God and others. We are connected and so keep showing up with us. And I want you to know that if, there's, if you're in the room this morning with scars, well, you're not alone. You're not alone. But what's not healed is handed down. And so unless you want to look at some of the stuff from your past that's poisoning your current relationships in your singleness, in your marriedness, in your widowhood, in your divorcedness, we're going to do some business with what has happened in your life. And if you're willing to take that journey with us, It's the upstream source. It's where the source is, you know, I think that's a long time ago. I think that's really small. It's fueling everything downstream in your life. So the goal is to go upstream. And by outlining chapter one, by looking at this woman, this narrator, our protagonist, by looking at her confidence and her calling and her self-perception, we can step boldly into this series. That we are loved by God And we can love as he intended. Help us love is the name of the title. S.O.S. Song of Songs. Help us love Lord. And here's your big idea. That the woman in the Song of Solomon is not content to be defined by cultural expectations, by what the world demands. Rather, she desires authentic love and intimacy and freedom. And she courageously pursues them. And a pursuit of upstream identification is an upstream path to freedom. For this woman models for us a different and more powerful way to define ourselves as beautiful and choose a different kind of love against the forces that attempt to control us. All of us live downstream. We do. We live in downstream waters. This morning I'm out praying for this very moment. And can I just be honest with you? Because you all know that's really, frankly, maybe my only spiritual gift. He just is honest. But like, I'm out there this morning, I'm feeling a little tired. I'm, I'm feeling a little beat down. I'm feeling a little overmatched. Song of Solomon's very intense. You give me uh, John 20, I'll preach all day long. You give me Song of Songs, holy cow, what are we doing with this stuff anyway? And I'm feeling, I'm feeling beat up. I'm just, I'm just like, man, how are we going to do this? And I'm praying. And I'm looking down. I'm out of school. There's kids playing on the field this morning. And I'm looking down at my feet, and there is a hypodermic needle. I'm not always super bright, so I'm like, I'm going to pick it up. And then I'm like, <laughs> grab the needle. then I'm like, I should not pick this up. And I put it back down. And it hits me. Man, we're living in downstream waters. Because while the kids are playing behind me, there's a needle of addiction right here at my feet because it's all around. And we have to deal with what is going on upstream that is poisoning our world and turning people against each other and breaking up marriages and making us feel alone in our singleness and turning to unhealthy forms of connection and pornography or or anger and isolation. we got to get Upstream what the woman models for us so let's take a look at the first point in our outline this woman in her upstream pursuit of her of, of her identity in god uh, she's swimming upstream against a current of confidence and towards this and i do hope you have your bible open to this i want to look at verses one through seven of of chapter one song of songs chapter one verses one through seven again like this is this is difficult and complicated stuff it is and how in the world are we going to study it? Um, we were studying with all the pastors. We get together with all the pastors that teach this. Uh, the men and women that are going to be teaching this in the next seven weeks between all the different locations. And uh, we are studying it. And, and Pastor Richard said, you know, I've been at Bethany 20-some years. I've taught around the world hundreds of times to the Torchbearer community. And we're like, yeah, give us, oh, okay. And he's like, and I've never taught Song of Solomon. And we're like oh great like we were kind of hoping you would be like i've done this a hundred times it'll go well he's like no i've never done it because we typically kind of squirrel it away we don't know what to do with it it's a poem and as i said earlier i just need you to go with me because there are different ways to read the poem and in chapter one some people historically even when they're dealing with sexuality and sensuality just two people the man and the woman the woman's pursuing the man the man's pursuing the woman But the reality is that there's this switching narrative that happens. It's also a switching point of view. Now, this is tricky. In in verse 2 of chapter 1, we have the woman saying, Let him kiss me with the the kiss of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. So it's tricky because there's this switching point of view, which is normal, normal in Hebrew poetry, not normal for us. The other trick is we're translating this from English from the ancient Hebrew. And if you know anything about Hebrew, you know that in the Hebrew language, the words don't translate perfectly into English. And so even as we read it in different versions of the Bible, we're going to read different things. I'm going to get to that when we get to verse 4 because it can lead to some uh, confusion but hopefully some some clarity. But as we begin, what I want you to see in verses 1 through 7 is this is a woman of confidence. It's a woman of confidence. The first words out of her mouth, let him kiss me written thousands of years ago in the context in which women would have been just property of their fathers subject to sexual violence and ownership a part of a harem part of solomon's thousands of women she is declaring by herself that she has a confidence in the face of culturally defined roles like, literally, what she is is probably a, a, a sex slave in some context. Now, we can say, oh, harem, maybe that sounds, you know, a thousand wives, whatever you want to call it, she is entered into a relationship of sexuality that's not of her choosing. I call that slavery. I call that not getting to choose her own narrative. And yet, in the midst of that, she's a woman of confidence, as you study chapter one, if you're trying to kind of unpack it, you see that she's also a vine dresser in, in the text, that she works outside, that she's a shepherd. This is a unique woman, but she is confidence. She's confidence. And, and it starts in the middle of the story in Meteoress, let him kiss me. It's evocative, it's courageous, and laden, yes, with her confidence. And she says, take me away with you, verse 4. Look at verse 4. Take me away with you, let us hurry. Now, I'm preaching out of the NIV. Not because it's the best, but because most of the people that come to church have NIV. It's the most easily to find translation for most folks. But the NIV breaks down in verse 4 because verse 4 says, take me away with you, let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers in the NIV. It's a translation from the original Hebrew. But it actually breaks down a great deal when you're like, wait, well, I thought the king was the bad guy, and then there's this healthy lover, and the woman gets to kind of choose, and we're the woman, and the healthy lover is like Jesus in the story, and the unhealthy king is like the world trying to oppress us and own us. Well, the NASB translated, translates uh, verse 4 differently. The NASB translated, frankly, better, where she says this, draw me after you and let us run together. The king has brought me into his chambers. So there are two men in the story, the king who is dominated and the lover who is wooing her into this covenantal love and honors her and respects her. And we can just, we can see that she's given a choice. Now, tons and tons of tons of sexuality in the Song of Songs. And you can read it allegorical just, you know, because we get this in Ephesians where we get from Christ Paul, but talking about Christ in the church, this model of husband and wife. Ephesians 5. How do you healthy, how do you model healthy marriage? I think a lot of it is grounded in Ephesians 5, where Paul says about marriage on earth, the mystery is great. Every time Heather and I do a marriage conference, I'm like, you know, babe, we're going to write a marriage manifesto. The mystery is great. And she's like, that's a horrible idea. No, no one, no one would buy that book. But I, I just think it's mysterious, and you're like, oh, I'm single. I don't know what you're talking about. Yes, you do. Because you've seen marriages. And you were raised by a single parent or a married parent. You've seen healthy relationship. You've seen unhealthy relationship. Can we just all get on the same page? The mystery is Great. But well, what Paul says in Ephesians 5, that our relationships with our spouse are meant to model what Christ did with the church. Now, wives, serve your husbands. We can underline that. I love that verse in Ephesians 5. And then the, Paul continues, husbands, serve your wife, the way Christ served the church, by giving his life for her. And so at the outset, our relationships are based on sacrifice. And if you're a Christian here this morning, and you have a ring on your finger, I've got bad news for you. The basis of your marriage is not self-gratification. It is self-sacrifice. Because you belong to a Savior who sacrificed for you while you were still a sinner. This is how we model love. Christ came for me while I was dead in my sins and gave up his life for me. And yet I'm, I'm, I'm hacked off about whatever's troubling me in my marriage right now. About the number of you know, sexually intimate times we've had or the way she's not you know, taking out the garbage or the way that we budget. I mean, we become so self-obsessed in our relationships. And some of you have been harmed in relationship. We're not talking about that because that was wrong. And Jesus would have never been okay with you being harmed in love. But for others this morning, like, I just want to do marriage better. Well, hear that challenge this morning. You are called to love so deeply it looks like sacrifice. And so, this woman who's given this invitation and this declaration of confidence, she's saying, I, I want to I choose love. Take me away from you. Let's hurry. The king's already brought me into his chambers. There's two men in the story. We see in verse 12 this two men hypothesis tested. While the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance, my beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh. Again, the two men hypothesis tested in verse 5, where she says, Dark am I yet lovely, dark like the tent curtains of Solomon. If she's speaking to Solomon, she would not say that. So she's speaking these words of invitation to this healthy love that is Christ in the story. We are the narrator. We are the woman. You're like, man, you lost me, but just stay with me because it's powerful. And she says this in verse five, this declaration of confidence. Dark am I yet lovely. And I don't know what translation you have in front of you, but if you have a pen, I'd like you to underline that verse. Dark am I yet lovely. And this verse is so laden with with issues of race and issues of class. Because this woman goes on to say, my skin is darkened because I've been in the fields. I've been oppressed, my brothers didn't allow me to take care of my own vineyard, which is laden with innuendo or not, depending how you read it. There's all sorts of innuendo in chapter one or not, depending how you read it. And depending who you read, how they read it. But she says this, and it's a declaration of confidence, dark am i yet lovely i've been out in the sun i've been caring for the vines i've been i've been caring for the sheep my brothers have not been caretaking me and though my skin is not what the cultural mores say is beautiful i am beautiful and she's saying that she's saying my skin looks darker than maybe what you have been taught about beauty but it is who i am And I am beautiful in God's eyes. And I am beautiful in your eyes. She calls herself lovely. And for us to enter into God's best life, we have to have this confidence that God's love has made us beautiful. This is the source for our strength to love. It's the source. Do you believe that God has made you beautiful? It's really hard to believe. Super hard to believe. Because every one of us has been, from the time we were young, we were given a message. We're not tall enough, small enough, wide enough, narrow enough, light enough, dark enough. I mean, you've heard these messages. When I was a kid, I was 14 years old, and trying to cover over insecurity of, frankly, being just a pudgy kid growing up. It's always stayed with me. And I've never really talked about that, but that's always. You know i put on a shirt and heather makes fun of me because so i'm like kind of doing this thing you know because it's got to hang just right because i'm a little i'm a little self-conscious sometimes and a lot of that started upstream at 14 years old running for class president capital high school and man i'm i'm 14. i'm dressed to the nines i've got my turtleneck on now everybody knows that, what year is this this is like 1989 Turtlenecks are still cool in 1989. That's what we were led to believe. I'm wearing my turtleneck, bright red sweater, kind of Bill Cosby style. There's probably shapes and different colors. I'm rocking it because I'm 14 and the year is 1989 and I want to be class president. And so I'm putting on the best costume I can and I'm trying to muster up my confidence. I want to believe that I'm good. I've got to give my speech that day and I'm sitting in the lunchroom at Capitol High School around the cafeteria, cafeteria and this girl walks up And I am not going to give you her name, but I know her name to this day because our mind does not forget when we've been wounded. I can feel it. I can smell the tater tots in the food bar. And she says, nobody wears turtlenecks anymore. It's 1989, not 1988. I'm like, I didn't know. And then she said, (laughs) and you look fat anyway. that's that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. There's no way that still impacts me. There's no way. There's no way that still impacts me. still impacts me. My kids were walking on a trail, and one of my kids said something mean about one of my kids being fat, whatever, and I'm like, no, because we never forget. My hunch is in this room that you've been told a message that's hard to forget. But you belong to a Savior who's called you beautiful. No matter your skin color, no matter your size, no matter your shape. Because you're His. You're His. You're beautiful. I mean, but the confidence that we long for downstream to have healthy marriages, to have great relationships with our kids, to pursue our singleness, our marriage, our our divorcedness. Like, we want to live in these healthy downstream waters. We have to understand there's something upstream that sometimes we need to deal with. And Christ is asking you this morning to live into this confidence that he has called you his own. And it's good. And it's beautiful to quote Song of Songs. And so then she kind of models here in the second point of our outline, the current of, of calling. And the calling that's expressed here at the end of the song is, is this mutual pursuit of beauty and of affection between healthy love relationship. Who's speaking here? It's the woman Choosing the lover, the healthy love relationship, who is the Christ figure. Verse 15, verse 16, verse 17. He says, the healthy lover, how beautiful you are, my, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes are doves. And then she says, how handsome you are, my beloved. How charming. And our bed is verdant. It's green. It's fertile. It's, it's, it's blossoming. It's, it's, it's about to go down. But it's like, it's not yet. It's like, it's good. And it's like, so free. Free. And then it leads to strength. Verse 17, the beams of our house are cedars, our rafters are furs. And we know in the Old Testament that this, this language about furs and strength matters a great deal for God because they understood the temple to be a place of strength. And so it's amazing that the calling they're being invited into is this mutual pursuit of seeing the beauty in one another and, 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 and being vulnerable with one another, quite frankly. Like, this would be awkward. All right, turn to your partner right now and say, verse 15, verse 6. Now we don't talk like that. But there's this urgency of speaking positively to one another and understanding that you belong to a Savior speaking this over you. Very simple. Let's make this concrete this moment. You're single. You're not married yet. Who is the he? It's Jesus Christ. And he's calling you beautiful. Who is the she? It's you. And if you're married, there's a double entendre that you are being invited into this connection with your Father God. And you're called to model that out in your earthly relationship that you would see your calling defined by your relationship and that you would be pursuing strength. Because verse 17 is this metaphor of strength. The beams of cedars and rafters of firs. You know, have you ever walked in one of those cabins that's What's that called? Like the, the timber frame, is that what it's called? Where you just see the beams and wood and it's, it looks strong. And the source for that kind of, I man, I want to have that kind of strength in my relationships. It comes from a place of, of seeing beauty in the other. And a place of dealing with our un, upstream sources of pain and hurt and neglect. And, and understanding that though we live in downstream waters, that all of us have a source. From our own experience and a source for deeper relationships in God himself. This is what we're being invited into. But man, most of us in the room were not raised with this kind of narrative. Right? If we're really honest. Like if we were married in a church. We probably did one to four sessions of premarital counseling. And we were you know, kind of married and sent into the world as a Christian couple. There's not a lot of training about healthy sexuality and healthy service of the other and the fact, like, things will go wrong downstream. We're going to have to have hard conversations and reconnect. We're just kind of launched. Some of you came to faith later. Man, I didn't get any of that. I was married by a friend or by a judge, and we've been trying to make our way through this. What's the source of the strength of the marriage or the relationships that we long for, the relationships to be determined because we're divorced or single, or the marriage we're currently in, the source of strength is the beauty that God has given you in the other. And being able to see that, it's tricky though. And, um, you know, it's been 18 years on Monday, Heather and I have been married last Monday. We're leaving today to go celebrate our uh, 18 years together, it's not all been easy. It's not all been perfect. Like, oh yeah, you teach people from the Bible. You teach marriage seminars. Yes, but it's not all been easy and it's not all been perfect. Because we have headwater stuff to deal with. A headwater thing to deal with for me was the fact that I was raised religious but not faithful with this heavy teaching that sexuality was bad. There was this girl. And I was in junior high. And we were dating or, Yeah. And she wrote me this letter. And the letter was loaded with innuendo. We had not been sexually active. We had been, you know, um, dating and, and kissed. But there's this letter. It's mailed to my house. And people in my house opened the letter, read the letter out loud in front of me, laughing all the while, and then handed the letter back to me to get rid of. And there was a clear clear, clear memory to me because from that moment on I knew that sexuality was to be squirreled away and healthy relationships I, I don't, I'm like I don't know what to do with it, it must all be bad, hide it away and this is where dark things grow, bad things grow when we squirrel things away this is, you know, I, I want more intimacy in, in my life and then maybe we don't get that and then it kind of squirrels away and in the, in the shadows unhealthy pursuits of intimacy creep up or, or, you know, I'm longing for, for a healthy human relationship. And in the absence of that, you know, in the, in the shadows, you know, spring up bitterness and loneliness and, and not more trust. We have to understand we all have these origin stories. And as we understand ourselves more, we're able to trust others more as we trust God. And that leads us well into this third point, this current of self-perception or identity that she deals with in the middle of the song. It should not be a question mark. I'm not sure how that got in. It's just the current of self-perception and identity. And this is going to be something we're going to see over and over again in the Song of Songs, that against the backdrop of this controlling sexual contract of the king is the wooing of the lover. remember, we are the woman in the story, which is countercultural today, let alone in the 6th century. We are placed in the, into the vulnerable place of being the woman. Where the world is trying to control us, modeled by King Solomon, but we are being wooed by this upstream source of more hope and more joy and more love as we turn our hearts deeper to Christ. And then the strength that we desire is in that identity of being people of Jesus. Now we can go downstream into healthy relationships. In our dating life, I'm not going to date someone that I don't want to be with. It's a waste of my time. And I might be lonely, but I'm not going to pursue intimacy at the expense of a connection to Jesus. Because the very thing I'm longing for when I turn to pornography, or to lust, or to loneliness, or to Tinder, or these different places where I'm like, ah, you know, the more I'm I'm looking for more hope, but I'm turning to unhealthy sources. And so, as we know this third point, as we know in the current of our identity being formed as people of God, then we can have healthy sexual conversations that we can, we can model the self-sacrificial love to one to another. That every day we'll face opportunities to live into our calling as people of hope and love and faith and swim upstream against a world trying to own us and telling us we're too wide, tall, dark, light, money, status. Car, like The world's constantly messaging to us that we are not enough. And in contrast to that, the Song of Songs calls us beautiful, and says there is an upstream hope in in identifying in the life of Christ that is charming, that is beautiful, that is hopeful, and that we can see ourselves as good, not because of Oprah or Bill O'Reilly or whatever source of news and encouragement. we No, but because of the scriptures, that we have a story, and we've made mistakes, and we've been beat up, and at times we feel beat down, But we are beautiful in his eyes. We are beautiful in his eyes. Oh, yeah, we're sinners. Yeah, we're sinners, all right. Sinners that Christ came for and gave his life for while we were still dead to sins. And so may we be marked with his grace and the courage to love, even in the gap from where I am now to where Christ is calling me to be. Paul says over and over again in Romans, so then I, is this just license to sin? It's not. Let us pursue this upstream path. Let me pursue healthy relationships. I won't be defined by mistakes anymore. Satan's always trying to get in our ear. He's like, yeah, but if they know. If they know your past. They'll never accept you. Yeah, If they knew what you looked at this week, last month, Never accept you. If they knew what your marriage was really like, if they knew the lack of physical intimacy going on between you, they would be appalled. He's just whispering. And the voice of the lover is speaking to us in the song saying, you are mine. So live into it and receive it and be encouraged by it and be challenged by it. And know that we have an identity as people and children of God. As Brennan Manning says, one of my favorite authors, he himself of a complicated downstream life. Manning says it takes a profound conversion to accept the belief that God is tender and loves us just as we are. Not in spite of our faults, but with them. God does not condone or sanction evil, but neither does he withhold his love because there's evil in us. The key to this understanding is the way we feel about ourselves. We cannot even stand or accept love from another human being when we do not love ourselves. much us believe or accept that God could possibly love us. We've spoken about Manning. He himself an alcoholic. Sick till the day he died. Understanding the complicated downstream lives we live. That will not look perfect to anyone. But we are called to this self-perception that there is goodness in us. And that we belong to a heavenly father. Despite the past. That's our identity. And that we have this calling in our singleness or our marriage to pursue healthy human relationship and healthy connection to God. And we are, we are confident of who we are because of who Christ says we are. That's where we live downstream. That's the the journey we take. I was reflecting on experiences a couple years ago, and I shared this one time. Many of you weren't here, Um, but I just all week I kept praying, Lord, is there something else you want me to close with? And I just kept feeling like the story mattered to somebody in the room this morning, so I'll share it with you. We took our kids to Great Wolf Lodge. My son was learning to swim, and, you know, it's chaos there. There's too many people, and it smells like chlorine. I don't know what's going on. And it's stressful, and um, it's fun. And we're in the wave pool, and my son's like, I want to go deeper. I want to go deeper. And he's learning to swim. And it's hard for me to let him go into the deep waters. But I know i got to let him go. I know for him to grow as the person I want him to be, he's got to experience the challenge and the struggle and the opportunity to swim. And so I follow him out. And he's out there. And then, you know, it's like, woo, the waves start and these waves start crashing and there's thousands of people in the pool and now he's out deeper and he's laughing but the laughter's trying to turn to, to worry and, and the whole time I'm, I'm just watching what's going to happen here and you know, he's kind of interacting with the kids and pretty soon he finds himself alone and the waves keep coming higher and he's able to, to touch the bottom of the waves keep coming higher and, and pretty soon he's, he's flailing and he reaches up at the last moment and, and I grab him and he turns and he's mad where were you? And I said, I've been here the whole time. I never actually left you. I've been standing here the whole time watching you. It's that courage that we need to go into deeper waters, to go downstream, to have better marriages, to have healthy singleness, to have better relationships with our kids or our parents. Where do we get that? Where will we get the downstream hope, the courage to love? It's upstream at the source. You are beautiful in his eyes. And may this series challenge and encourage you to continue to define yourself, not by the words the world has spoken to you trying to control you, but by the lover Jesus Christ wooing you. And that will be the, the strength to love vertically and horizontally. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for a chance to worship together and to open your scriptures. We pray that you would enlighten us and challenge us in the series ahead. And we recognize that it is a lot. As we think about our sexual histories, as we think about our scars, as we think about our unwillingness to hurt or to trust from our hurt. Lord, it all feels like a lot. Would you encourage this church to take the trip downstream? Would you encourage this church to take the journey into deeper waters? That we would deal with our stuff and grow towards you, Jesus, really grow. And would that be the strength to have better human relationships, that we might be your light into a world that needs it so desperately. In your name we pray, amen. This is Communion Sunday and um, a powerful opportunity this morning as we approach this table to remember that we approach the table of communion not out of our strength or out of our, the way, anything that we've earned, for the Christ came for us. And while we were sinners, he died for us. And that's where the beauty comes from. We're beauty because he calls us so. And the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took the, the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, eat. And he took the cup and he lifted it. And he said, this is the, the blood of the new covenant poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. This table at Bethany is open to all that want to go into the deeper waters, that want to go to the source of real life and intimacy in Jesus Christ. And so as we approach the table, we're mindful. Jesus, I'm a sinner saved by grace. And then when we take the bread, in this case, gluten-free bread, and we dip it in the juice, may you hear the words. You're beautiful. You're beautiful this morning. You're beautiful because he says you are. This table is now open. Let me pray over the elements and we'll continue in song. Lord, thank you for these moments. We pray that your presence and spirit would be here now as we worship you. And all God's people said, Amen.